Y'all doing good this morning? Oh my gosh, are y'all doing good this morning? Okay, <laughs> caught you off guard there, right? Need that second cup of coffee or the first cup, right? Well, hey, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark as we like to do here at Revolution Church. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible and we study them together. And um, I didn't preach last week. And between not preaching last week and being super excited about this message this morning, I'm just like chomping at the bit. I was like ready to skip the music. Let's just go straight to preaching. But uh, I hope you're excited as I am about this passage we're going to learn here this morning. I'm going to read for you this morning in Mark chapter 11. We're going to finish the chapter 11 and then start chapter 12 because the two stories are connected really well. And so it says here, that they came again to Jerusalem. They is talking about Jesus and his disciples. They're coming to Jerusalem again. They've been hanging out outside of town in Bethany. He went into town and turned the tables over and things like that. So give you the context here. It says, And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you about what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then do you not believe? But we shall say from man, and that they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press every Sunday. Every single Sunday. Lauren, next week's your turn, right? Okay, Lauren and Patrick take turns, I don't know. Anyway, he built a fence around and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another, a far country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the, some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so many, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him. And they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And would you read verse 12 all together with me? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So some of you remember in the 1950s and 60s, a TV show called The $64,000 Question. They did a new version of it again, I think in the 80s and 90s. 
It didn't go so well, but basically they would start off so, an individual with, if you get this question right, you get $1,000. And if, and then they'd get it right, and I said, okay, you can keep the $1,000 or you can double it and go to 2000 And they'd keep doubling, four, eight, and you know how to do the math, right? And eventually it'd get up to $64,000. And at any time, they could stop and keep the money, or they could go on and double it. And of course, if they got it wrong, what? They lost it. They got nothing but, you know, uh, a toaster oven from a man or something like that as a send-home prize. But uh, the funny thing about the show was it was rigged. They, if, a, if, a character, if, a, if a contestant on the show was popular and people liked them, they fed them the answers. But if a contestant was, like, boring and dry, they, this one guy, they actually forced him to take a dive. And they said, just answer the question wrong. And the guy even knew the question. He later sued the network, NBC, and the show was canceled. And so they tried to bring it back. But today's question, the, the elders and Jesus trade questions that are much bigger than the $64,000 question. And we're going to kind of get into that this morning. So here again, they're coming to Jerusalem. Remember, the last time that Jesus came to Jerusalem, he tipped the tables over just a couple days previous. He basically kicked everybody out of the temple and said, hey, this is my father's house, and you've turned into a den of thieves. It's meant to be a house of prayer for all people, especially the Gentiles. And what are you doing in a Gentile court? You're, you're sitting there buying, selling, trading, and ripping people off. And you've not even made room. And you're cutting through with animals in a place that's supposed to be designated for prayer. You've really defiled my house. And of course, remember, Jesus started his ministry this way, and three years later, he ends it. And all this is happening. Now keep this in the back of your minds. As we're going through this story, and Jesus is having this heated exchange with these guys, this is two days before they kill him. Okay, so just to kind of give you the context of all this. So he's walking in the temple, the temple that he had just cleansed. Okay, this is a temple where they sacrifice animals. And every, you know, they sacrifice animals on a regular basis for all different types of sin offerings and guilt offerings, things like that. But they also sacrifice once a year. What, what's the major sacrifice? Passover, right? And so Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he's walking into the temple, and all this is going on, and it's not the way. In fact, it says when he walked in before, the night before he cleansed the temple, it says it was too late. It was like, this place is so corrupt. There's no redeeming this temple. And they prophesied that it would be destroyed, which in 70 AD came absolutely true. So here's the chief priests who are supposed to be the religious leaders, but they're nothing but hypocrites, along with the scribes and the elders. Basically, all these guys make up what's, most of them are part of what's called the Sanhedrin, the 70. And the 70 was like Moses had his 70, so they continued this 70 here in the New Testament. Um, or at least, I'm sorry, not in the New Testament, but in the end of the Old Testament era. There's no really anywhere that says they have the authority to do that. They thought they sat in the seat of Moses, and that was part of the problem. And it says, and what they said to him, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who, who gave you the right to come in here, tip over temples, and kick people out and tell them they can't cut through anymore? And, and who gave you this authority? And notice they got two different questions here. What and who? The what is like, what organization are you a part of? And Jesus is like, None. And who gave you this authority? Well, as far as people go, none of you. I, I get my authority from God. But again, this is what Jesus was thinking, but he doesn't answer this question yet because what they're trying to do is what they've been doing for years. They're trying to get Jesus to say something so that they can charge him with the crime and they can kill him. 
Of course, Jesus has always been holding off and avoiding the issue because he wants to do his teaching, he wants to do his healing, and then when the time is right, then, and only then, when he's in control, then he will offer his life as a sacrifice. Now, hopefully you found on the, on the seat near you a piece of paper. Look at that with me because the, the print on the screen is going to be way too small. But if you would look at that, you see what we call the chiastic structure of the passage, which is so amazing because you see this all throughout the Bible where a the, the way Hebrew mind works is we think linearly. We go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We think in a line. We begin at the beginning of the story and we go at the end. But the way the Hebrew mind works is they start with an introductory type of comment and then they work their way into the main point in the middle and then they work their way back out and they end the way that they began. And so you see here, the book of Mark begins with an angel witnessing Jesus, the coming of Jesus, right? The angels sang over the, the uh, and gave testimony to the shepherds and all that. And then the book of Mark ends with angels witnessing his going away. And you see how that works its way in. And then notice like the fuchsia colors there with the asterisk stars. Um, it says, who is this that the winds even obey him? Remember Jesus said, peace be still. And this typhoon stopped and the waters became placid. And like, wow, where does he get the authority? Even nature listens to him. And then the parallel is where we're at today. By what authority to do these things? Because the Jesus that has the authority over the wind and the sea has the authority over the temple and all the religious sacrifices gone. He said, I got authority over all of it because all of it is mine. And then the main middle point right there that we went over a few weeks ago where God says, this is my beloved son. That's the key phrase today. Beloved son, listen to him. Who are you listening to this morning? That, that's what they're saying. They're saying, where do you get your authority? And he's like, I am the authority. Who are you listening to? And so it's all about who are you listening to? So it says, by what authority do you do these things? And my question for us this morning is, by what authority do you do what you do? Seriously, when you get up and go to work, under whose authority are you operating? No, not Gary's. Okay, wrong answer, Corey. But uh, by, I know you're joking. But what authority do you do what you do? When you choose a college, by what authority are you going to do that? When you decide that you're going to watch TV, watch something, and you're going to stream something, under whose authority are you making what choices? It should be under God's, right, Mia? Yeah, we should be doing everything under the authority. And, it, and so we can sit there and watch this story. And, and as you see this, the, the elders, the scribes, and all that, we can see how religious, evil people they are. But we need to ask ourselves the same question. Under whose authority are we operating? What does 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. We would literally, literally need to wake up in the morning and say, what would you have me to do today, Lord? I am yours. We sh we should be operating with every decision under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, well, I'll ask you a question. And it's interesting, he says, I'm going to ask you one question. Because Jesus knows it's going to be one and done. Because Jesus knows the future, he knows all that's going to be going on. He says, I'm going to just ask you one question, you answer me. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority to do these things. And this, this was not just Jesus being rude or evasive, okay? Rabbis had the practice of teaching by asking questions. It's what's known historically as the Socratic method. 
You know, well, what would you think about that? What would you do in that situation? You, you're teaching by leading questions on the path that you want them to take. So that's what Jesus is doing here like a good rabbi, the best rabbi. And he says, the, the baptism of John. Now, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, if a Gentile realized that Jehovah is the true and living God, they could convert to Judaism, if you will, by a, 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 clen- a cleansing of a baptism. There was big purification pots. By the way, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that's what he used. These purification pots full, filled them full of water, not for people to be baptized, but so he could perform his first miracle. But people would dip into those and that cleansing, and they would say that I'm basically being cleansed of my sins because I trust in Jehovah God and no longer in my pagan gods, and I'm converting, I'm become one of you. And so John the Baptist, though, comes on the scene and says, hey, you Jews, you need to be baptized because you're not even worshiping Jehovah or even anywhere near to be close. You need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was the one who's paving the way for the Messiah to come. And it was John the Baptist, through his baptism ministry, he then says, when Jesus comes walking over the hill, he says, behold what? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So John's ministry, John's baptism was all pointing to Jesus, that this is the one who has authority. So that's why Jesus is bringing us up. He says, so John's baptism, was it from heaven? In other words, was it authority for John to do what he did from heaven or from man? Did John go before the Sanhedrin and say, hey, can I have permission to do my ministry out in the wilderness? No. He got permission directly from the Heavenly Father to do what he did. So his baptism, the authority to do that was not from, from man, it was from heaven. And then he goes, answer me. Now, I don't want to read too much into the story, but I, I really believe at this point Jesus is pretty ticked off. I believe it's like, man, you, you hypocrites, you and your stupid questions, you answer me. I really think, I put the exclamation point there, by the way. There's not exclamation points in Greek or Hebrew. It's just, you know, we add them in English for emphasis there. So I, I think Jesus is really putting them on the spot. So they discussed it. And the key problem with their discussion is they're discussing with one another. This is clearly what Jesus called the blind leading the blind. When you get tough questions, what should you do? You should go to the scriptures, like the Bereans did, and study to see what's true. You know, you should search the scriptures, because they all point to Jesus. But they're discussing with one another. You know, people have these weird discussions about what they think. Um, I, I, I like to listen to this one guy who's a, gr- a good apologist. He has one of the top YouTube channels. His name is Mike Winger. And uh, look him up. He's really, really good. And he has lots of podcasts and YouTubes and things like that. And um, he was in a discussion with a guy who was an atheist. And the guy said, I cannot believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ because there's not enough evidence. So Mike Winger goes through all the evidence of the literal resurrection about from the eyewitnesses to non-Christian Roman and even Jewish historians pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Goes through all the manuscripts, goes through even the medical things about the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection and everything. And the guy goes, well, yeah, that is, that's a pretty good amount of evidence, but it's still not enough for me to believe. And he goes, well, what do you believe? And the guy goes, I believe in reincarnation. He's like, and what evidence do you have for that? And the guy goes, I don't know. Do you see like the incredible double standard? For, the, for us to believe what God says, oh, we need a mountain of evidence, and then we'll believe in reincarnation with no evidence. Because it's really not about evidence. When you come across someone who doesn't want to believe the gospel, it's not because they haven't seen enough proof. Oh yeah, if you show me the proof, I'll believe. 99 times out of 100, it's because they don't want to believe 
because they've got this lifestyle they want to live. And if I believe in Jesus, I've got to ditch this lifestyle. And I really like my girlfriend. I like living with my girlfriend. Or I like whatever lifestyle I'm in. Don't ask me to give all this up. And that's what it's about. It's under whose authority are you living? And people don't want to live under the authority of the Lord. So they'll reject it. And they'll do it in the name of science. But it's not about science. Because science is on our side, not, not on theirs. Um, so why did they not believe him? Why did they not believe in John? Why did they not believe in Jesus? And, and what I'm telling you about, it, with these religious leaders, it was all about two things, power and control. And it even says so in the scriptures. And even, even Pilate, when he said, what do you want to crucify this, guy, crucify this guy for? He's done nothing wrong. It says Pilate knew it was because of jealousy. He knew it because of envy. And so they were envious of Jesus' power because he was taking away their crowds. And also is about control. They didn't want to live under the authority of Jesus. They wanted to be their own authority. But let me ask us a question this morning. Why do we not believe Jesus? You say, well, Gary, I do believe in Jesus. I'm saved. Okay. Let me, let me divide this into two groups. Let's talk to those of us who name the name of Christ. And we, are, we call ourselves followers of Christ. But there are times that we do not believe the Lord. We do not trust Him. We, we, we're saved, but we, we're like... Yeah, I know the Bible says don't overturn evil for good, you know, don't repay evil with, e with evil, but overcome evil with good. But I still, I said what I said, you know. Or I know I shouldn't lie, but I really don't want to go to work today, so I'm going to call in sick. And we, we do things where we prove that we don't believe God's word. You know what? I know we're supposed to give to the Lord and we're supposed to give our, our tithes and our offerings and be generous, to, but, but money's really tight right now and, and I've got to make my boat payment and whatever, and we've got to do all these things. So why do we not believe in the Lord before we point our fingers at them? It's all for the same two reasons. We want to have the power. We want to be in control of our own lives. It's like when they crucified Jesus, they said, very prophetic phrase, we will not have this man rule over us. And that's what's planted deep in the heart of me and deep in the heart of every one of us. We want to say, this is my life. I'm going to choose what I do. That, that's what every song on the radio tells you. It's your life. Take control. You know, live your life. Follow your own destiny. You follow your heart. All this really, really bad theology that tells us what we should do with our own lives because we want to have the power. We want to have the control. And we will try to control a spouse. We'll try to over-control our kids. We'll try to control circumstances. We'll manipulate things. And really what we need to do is bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ. And so here's the other reason. It says, but if we say it's from man that John's baptism, oh, it was just John do what John wants to do, then the people are going to turn on us because they thought John was a rock star. They loved John. So if we turn against John, and so they were afraid of the people. And you know what? That's a really bad situation to be in. Where you, when you know something is true, but you won't believe it because you're afraid of what everybody around you thinks, Proverbs speaks to this. In chapter 29, verse 25, you, we all need to memorize this verse. The fear of man lays a snare. What, what is a snare? It's a trap. And in this case, specifically, it's a type of snare that like, catches birds. It's like well, they'd hang it up between trees, and it'd be thin enough to where a bird couldn't see it. And a bird would fly into it, and it'd come down, and there'd be rocks attached to the edge. So the, the more the bird struggled, the more the bird just got up all entangled in that. And when you are afraid of what everybody thinks about you, there's no way out. You're really 
struggling in a place where you're going to make it worse. But the opposite of fearing people is the fear of the Lord. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And the word safe there means secure. You are fine in your own skin. I'm good. I like who God made me. I'm great. I know I'm not perfect, but I know when I'm filled with the Spirit and I'm walking in the Word and I'm doing what I do, life is great. And so why should I care what you think? Because here's the thing. If you are a born-again believer that's filled with the Spirit and you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, you are going totally counterculture. You're not going to fit in everywhere. You're probably not going to fit in many places. People may not like you, but they hopefully will respect you. But if you're looking for approval, you're always trying to dress to impress, you're driving to show that you know your neighbors, hey, look what I got here. You're buying the bigger, better house, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Man, it's just a never-ending. You're our hamster on, a, on the habit trail. You're, you're going to keep going nowhere fast with that. And it's just going to bring you down. Um, so, verse 33 says, So when they answered Jesus, they said, We do not know. <laughs> which, which I would love to be there when that, when that happened. The know-it-alls, the guys who were the experts in the law, the scholars of the Old Testament are like, no, We don't know. Now, I don't think they were being humble enough to say we really don't know. They were trying to be diplomatic. They were they're trying they didn't want they they were afraid to answer because they knew if they answered one way, they look stupid. If they answer the other way, the crowd turns on them. And so Jesus says, Okay, you don't want to answer my question, I'm not answering yours. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do this. Now, what's interesting about this, Jesus does not answer them directly. But in the parable he tells, if they're looking for it, the answer is there. But he's not going to answer them directly. So this brings up an interesting question. What should we think? How should we act when Jesus doesn't answer our questions? Anybody else ask God questions? Like, God, why did this happen? Or God, what do you want me to do? We should be asking questions. There's nothing unbiblical about it if we ask with an honest heart. Okay? But when, when, what happens when, God, when Jesus doesn't answer our questions? Well, let's go back to Job. You remember the story of Job, most of you. Hey, here's Job, get this, without a Bible, without a church, he has a strong relationship with God. Okay, I'm not recommending you should do that. Okay, God gave us all these things to help us with our relationship with God. But here's Job without those things. He's making sacrifices with God. And one day, a messenger comes to him and says, hey, all your camels and all your oxen and all that stuff, someone stole them. Okay, another messenger comes, says, your ten kids. We're in a house having a big party. A wind, strong wind blade came through. The roof collapsed on all of them, killed all of them. And just one messenger of bad news after another, and Job's world falls apart. Job experiences more trauma in one day than most of us will experience in a lifetime, if not all of us. Okay? I mean, you talk about traumatized. And yet the Bible says, and yet in all this, Job sinned not with his mouth. He said, the Lord blesses, the Lord takes away. Naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. You talk about a strong man of faith, okay? But, you know, this all this continues, and Job eventually starts asking questions. And so the book of Job, you know, long, long book here, and, and so Job is asking questions of God, then Job's friends come and ask Job lots of questions. And then this young guy, Elihu, comes up and asks all them questions and tells them they're all old idiots and whatever. Then God totally, totally just pushes Elihu aside and goes straight to Job and says, Then the Lord answered Job, 
not Elihu, not his friends, he answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsels? And I, I, I would like to do my deepest God voice, but I can't. But imagine a thunderous voice. This is coming out of a storm. I really believe there's like lightning, there's thundering. I think God's put, you know, just even holding back with the intimidation here. He said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And you talk about a backhanded comment. You guys are all talking. You don't know a thing. You have no idea what you're saying, to put it in a modern vernacular. And then he says to Job, said, dress for action like a man. Put on your big boy's pants. Stand up. We're going to have a come to meet Jesus meeting. The, the, some translations say, when it says dress for action, it says gird up your loins because men wore robes. But you couldn't run in a robe, but you'd trip on your sandals and fall on your face. So you had to pull them up, and sometimes you'd tie them around your waist so you could take off and run. If you're getting ready to fight, you would gird up your loins. And God's like, you want to talk trash? Let's talk trash. You want to fight? Put on your clothes for action. Let's go. He said, I will question you. Does that sound familiar? This is Jehovah God saying, you want to ask me questions? I'm going to ask you a question. Sound familiar? Jesus is standing before the elders, the scribes, they're asking a question. Now, you guys want to ask me a question? I'm going to ask you one question. So Jehovah God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, is now asking the questions in, in our Mark passage. But let's stay here with Job for just a second. And, and you make it known to me. Continuing Job here, says, he says, I will still ask you a question. Well, I recovered that sound familiar. That sounds just like Jesus. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, I, I didn't even exist. Yeah, that's right. The all-existing one, I've always existed. You weren't even a twinkle in your mom's eye. And yet you're going to tell me when I laid the foundations of the earth? He said, and who determined its measurements? Surely you guys know, right? You, you, the sarcasm here is just off the charts. So, number one, when Jesus doesn't answer our questions, number one, Jesus doesn't owe you an answer. What's interesting is, God goes on this long sermon with Job, and he never answers the question. Because he doesn't owe Job a question. So with Job, wasn't he a godly man? Yes, he was. But God is still God and we are not. And there's some things that God doesn't owe us an answer. Number one, he doesn't owe us an answer. But number two, there are some answers that if he gave them to you, you couldn't handle it. <laughs> it's like that um, movie, you can't handle the truth. And it's just like when your two-year-olds or three-year-olds ask you certain questions, they're like, uh, they're not ready for the answer, you know. Um, whether, whether it's where the babies come from or all those things like that, they're not ready for the answer. They could not handle it. Um, I remember years ago when my son Lance was little. He was about like Carter's age, I think. And he was running around through the living room and he tripped and he caught the corner of a piece of furniture just like this, split his forehead wide open. Okay, So this is before cell phones. Yes, some of you probably think it's before phones, but it wasn't. It was before cell phones. And uh, I could not call my family and tell them where I was going. And so I just loaded up Lance and went to the emergency room. And when they got home, they didn't find me or Lance there or any of the kids. And they found a puddle of blood on the floor. <laughs> and they were freaked out there for a while. But anyway, so I took him to Baptist Hospital there in Beaumont. And uh, Lance is probably like, I guess maybe five. I guess, I don't know. Um, but he's old enough that he doesn't understand what's happening. And me and a couple of nurses have to hold him down and, and, while they're, and also hold his head while they put these stitches in for him. And they put a, a sterile like, sheet over him. They cut out a, a hole for his eye to see. 
And Lance's eyes like looking at me like, why are you letting these people hurt me like this? Daddy, stop them, stop them. And I'm like holding down my son and I can't explain to him why all this pain and I'm helping this doctor put pain in him and all that stuff. I was sticking the needle in his forehead to numb it, but it hurts for the first couple of jabs there. And he's looking at me like, why in the world are you letting him do this to me? You're on my side. Why are you letting these doctors hurt me? How do you answer that question to a little kid? You just can't, because there's some answers that they really can't answer, uh, they can't handle. Number three, often when the scribes and us get the answers, they use them as ammunition. See, they weren't asking Jesus these questions honestly. So they could say, oh, okay, great answer. Now we'll follow you. It's like, we want to use your answers against you. And scribes aren't the only ones that do that. Human beings have a way of doing that as well. Well, Number four, we need to keep in mind that we will be judged by God, not the other way around. And here's the judge of the universe. All those scribes, all those Pharisees, all the college professors, President Biden, President Trump, President Carter, all the presidents, Putin, Everybody around the world, all these dictators, they will all bow the knee before Jesus Christ someday. All of them. And yet they all want to stand in judgment of Jesus. And someday, the ironic thing is, he's going to judge us. And so then, Jesus does what he does. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. It says, and he began to speak them in parables. In parables. How many have ever heard that, uh, someone teaching that parables are earthly lessons with a heavenly meaning? You ever heard that before? Just throw that in the trash can. It's not worth. It's not really accurate at all. It's not just Jesus using cute little objects to teach us things like that. He, although Jesus does use object lessons, but parables specifically, by what Jesus says, were meant to, because certain people understood and certain people didn't, and he was trying to veil the truth. In fact, a good a quote I heard recently is, "Parables reveal the truth to those who are willing to believe the mysterious, and conceal the truth to those who willfully ignore the obvious." That's a good quote. Let me, that's not mine. Let me read this again. Parables reveal the truth to those who are willing to believe the mysterious, and they conceal the truth to those who willfully ignore the obvious. If your heart is not leaning towards where you honestly, honestly want to see God, the parables will be like, what does that even mean? But if you're like, I really want to know the Lord. I really want to seek His will. I know I've messed up my life. I need a Savior. And you study the parables, they will, they will enlighten you and they will, they will reveal the truth to you. So he, he says, here's the story. We read it before, but let me go through it. A man planted a vineyard. Who is the man? Well, we know from Isaiah chapter 5, which we'll get into in a minute, the man is Jehovah God, the Heavenly Father. Okay? He planted a vineyard. What is, a vin- what is the vineyard? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. Again, he explains that in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. He refers to him as a flock, as a vineyard, and as many different analogies. Here he's talking about the vineyard. And then he put a fence. In other words, they were wanderers. First, they were slaves in Egypt. Then they were wanderers. They never had their own borders. But now he gave them a border with their own nation. The fence around the walled fence. It's not like, don't think of a, a wire fence or a wooden fence. Think of a stone fence around the vineyard, that was saying the borders you now have, you're your own country. And he dug a pit for the wine press, okay? So a vineyard, the whole purpose is to crush the grapes to produce wine. And he says, and he built a tower. The tower um, 
was high and lifted up so you could see enemies if there were anybody's coming to steal. Because usually on harvest time, you had to watch out for people who wanted to steal all your hard work. But also they would carry their tools and implements up into the tower for security so people couldn't just walk by and steal your tools. Um, so the, wine, the tower represents the temple. The temple was the place of worship and the wine press would be what? The altar. Because what was spilled on the altar? The blood. What does the wine press do? It crushes the grapes and spills out the juice. Remember Jesus says, this is my blood in the New Testament and it was the wine. So wine is a representation of blood. And then he leased it to the tenants. Who are the tenants? They're the leaders of the nation of Israel. Of Israel. They're, they're the high priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, all those who are supposed to be religious leaders but are nothing but major hypocrites. By the way, have you ever noticed in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has his biggest problems with people who are supposed to be in charge. Because why is that? Because people can't handle power. People can't handle control. You know, when, I, when some people, when their church runs thousands, it also goes to their head. Then we read about a newspaper having affairs and abusing things with money and all kinds of stuff like that. People can't seem to ha- handle power. I, I, we all struggle with that. I struggle with that because we're meant to be. We're, we're pointing to the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ. But we also, after a while, we think it's about us. So the tenants were the, the religious leaders. See, and Isaiah explains this. He said, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Talking about Jehovah God. My beloved, the, God the Father, the beloved, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Again, this is a prophecy about the nation of Israel. And he dug it and he cleared it of all the stones. What did he do with the stones? He built wall fence around it. And he planted it with choice vines. In other words, he went to, you know, like Texas A&M, they can figure out which ones are going to produce the best things, and they start um, um, grafting things together to make better products. So this guy chooses out the best vine, transplants it to his field. He builds a watchtower, again, for security, which represents a temple in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat or a wine press in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes look similar, but once you look them closely, oh, these aren't very good, and they taste horrible. So it was supposed to produce really good fruit, and it produced horrible, unedible fruit. So when the season came, he sent a... So now we're back to Mark. So this harvest time comes. He sends a servant. So he's the one... Think about this. The, 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 the vineyard owner, he did all the work. He took a field that was just a mess, full of rocks, pulled out all the rocks, used those rocks to build the fence around it, build a tower, build a wine press, started the thing. Sometimes vineyards take five years to produce good grapes. Then he leases out, says, okay, you guys, you guys run this place. I will let you keep part, and then I get my part. Deal? Deal. I'm going to go away, which is what they, what they did. And he would do that. They would sometimes do this at several places, and they'd own several vineyards. So I'm going to go away to another place, get another project started. When I come back, you keep your portion of it. I keep my portion of it. So he sends a servant to the tents to collect some of the fruit. He didn't want all of it, right? He's in, he, he, the deal was they get to keep some. That's the way God does with us. How much of what we own belongs to God? All of it, but he lets us keep some of it, and he wants some. So they get to keep some of it. And, when they, and they took him, and they beat him. This guy works for the vineyard owner. They had a deal. They've been working on this for years. They knew the day was coming. And they sent him away empty-handed. So he goes back to the, to the vineyard owner, and you know he he may have had several 
donkeys or mules or whatever to pull carts full of the grapes or whatever they were going to use the exchange would be. And he comes back with nothing. And again he sent another servant and they struck him on the head. Which means they didn't just punch him in the face. They obviously hit him with something that could have been, you know, almost fatal. And then they treat him shamefully, which we really don't know what that means, but you can just imagine the cruelty of humans and which way they could have tried to humiliate him as they maybe tortured him. And he sent another. This time they don't just beat him. They don't just struck him, you know, crack his skull. They kill him. And so with many others, not just one or two or three, but many, and some of them they beat and some of them they killed. So if you're doing the math here, we're like in the double digits of people being beaten and killed. And uh, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Now, now let's just go back for just a second here. Let's say you're listening to that story. You're like horrified. And I think even the scribes and the elders and the chief priests are being sucked in. It's like, wow, who would do such a thing? These evil tenants, why would they do that? But what he's talking about is them. Because the way they, the Jews, for all throughout their history, treated prophets. Micaiah, not Micah, Micaiah was slapped in the face repeatedly and put in prison. Jeremiah was stoned to death, according to history. Ezekiel was murdered by a man who rebuked him of his sin, and the guy didn't like it, so he killed him. Zechariah was stoned to death for rebuking the people who turned aside to the Asherah poles, where they committed immorality to false gods. And for, and for forsaking the temple. Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. It was quite the torturous. In fact, I believe Hebrews is referring to Isaiah when it says they were stoned and they were sawn in two. I think that's a reference to Isaiah. We don't know for sure, but we know more than one person was, that happened to. Hanani reproved the king Asa for relying on the king of Aram instead of on the Lord, saying that from that time onward he would be at war. And the king was so enraged that he put him in, in prison. This is how they treated the messengers of God. Uriah, not Uriah Bathsheba's husband, but Uriah the prophet, was struck down with a sword and his body thrown into the common burial place. And you take it even all to the close of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, who was beheaded by Herod because he pointed out his incestuous relationship with his niece. This is the way Israel treated people. We you know, we... We teach our kids, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, all stuff. look at these heroes of the faith. And like, they're, they're great. And they are. But they died, most of them, or were treated. You see, that's what's amazing. is The Bible is written by Jews. And yet it has the honesty to say, yeah, we were a bunch of idiots. <laughs> we treated our prophets horribly. You know, if you, and people say, well, all that's just legend. It's just, the Bible's just made up. If you're going to make stuff up, you say, George Washington never lied. You know? And Abraham Lincoln was just the best person ever. And you, you tell mythological things that aren't true. The Jews tell what jerks the disciples were and how they were arguing over power. They're not trying to create legends and myths and, and fables and, and make Jesus into something he was not. They're just telling the truth about how stupid we were and how great God is. And even John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest of any man born among women, you guys killed him. So you look at this pattern here. He keeps sending people and sending people and sending people. And, and at first, 
Everybody's astonished at like how bad they treated them. And then after a while, the shock changes. So wait a minute, why does he keep sending people? You know, we can't believe that these people are so mean, but now we can't believe that, is this guy stupid? Why does he keep sending these people over and over and over again? So we go from how in the world could they be so brutal to why in the world does he keep sending servants to be beaten and killed? You see, the more that we are astonished at the wickedness of this world, which it's getting pretty wicked, amen? It's getting really bad out there. and We're just, we're just like, you know, I knew the world was getting bad. I, when I, as a teenager, when I got saved at nine, we went to prophecy conferences. We knew about all this stuff, and we learned about the end of the world and how bad it would be. But in the last, if you had asked me how bad the world would be in the last couple of years, even I'm shocked, and I'm looking for it to be bad. And the more and more we behold this wickedness, the more we should be astonished at the patience and persistent love of God as God holds back. And he is. He is holding back. I'm sure there's angels in heaven like, Father, can we go? Can we, can we, can we end it now? We, we, could, we could end it like that. And the Father's like, no, just hold back. Hold back. God, is, his patience and his love is persistent. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus, he's going to say this in the next couple of days as we're in Passion Week here. He says, oh, and when, when people repeat things, it's with emotion. So Jesus is with tears. Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem the city that killed the prophets and the stones that were sent to it. You think, if somebody says that, I wish I could punch you in the face, right? That's what I'd say. If, if, you talk, if I was talking to somebody who mistreated my kids, I'd be like, oh, you jerk, you jerk. And man, if I get my hands on you and listen to what Jesus says, Jerusalem, you kill all my prophets, and guess what I want to do? I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers a brood of chicks under her wings. That's mind-blowing. Our human nature would be, I just can't wait to kill them. And the Heavenly Father, Jesus is like, I just want to love you. I just wish, I wish you would just repent so I can you know, take you in as baby chicks to a mother hen. So back to the story here. The vineyard owner, he sent all these servants, all these slaves. They've been killed, they've been beaten, mistreated. But he's got one left, and it's his beloved son. And this is like when you go to one of those scary movies. You're like, no, don't go in that room. Don't go in there. And everybody's like, no, I can't believe they're going in there, you know? And it, it just like, and here they're like, no, no, please, don't tell me he's going to send his beloved son. And he said, certainly they'll respect my son. Now, don't transpose the story onto the Heavenly Father. It's not like the Heavenly Father goes, well, certainly they're going to respect Jesus. <gasps> well, they didn't? No, it's not taken off guard. It's a, it's a parable, so not everything is parallel, okay? But it, it's a parallel where they represent what's going on. But those tenants, doesn't say the tenants, it says those tenants, like those wicked, vile tenants, they said to one another, hey, this is the heir. It all belongs to him. If we kill him, everything will be ours. Let us, let us kill him. You see, this story beautifully and yet painfully illustrates the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. God shows his love for us while we're still sinners. Christ dies for us. This is where, the, what, what in the world would cause this vineyard owner to send his only son, knowing that he's going to be killed, unless it is for nothing less than for love? You see, the gospel not only provides us forgiveness, and it gives us the ability to forgive others, 
but it also gives us the obligation to forgive others. So not only do you have the ability to tell your ex, you know what, I don't like you, but I love you and I forgive you. It, it gives you the ability to the, the boss that lets you go when you, there was no just cause for it to say, you know, I don't agree with your decision, but I forgive you. It not only gives you the ability to do that, it means you must do that. It means you're obligated to forgive. Forgiveness is not an option. And now, you're okay, well, at least now I know I can. No, now you should. Now you must. Are, are we holding grudges this morning? There's someone that's hurt you recently, maybe not so recently in your past. Are you holding on to it? The gospel, this vineyard owner sending people knowing that they would be hurt because he loved them, is what gives you the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit of God to forgive them, but it also means you must forgive them. If, if Elon Musk deposited a billion dollars in your account, that would be pretty cool, right? Yeah, he's got it. I mean, gosh, if he can buy Twitter for $44 billion, he can do. he can give me a billion, right? So if he, if he put a billion in your account and, and someone through fraud steals $48 from your bank account, are you going to be freaking out, wanting to go out and kill somebody? You're like, well, that was stupid on their part, but I'm okay, right? And you got to think, man, Patrick still owes me 40 bucks. He never paid me back. That jerk. See me after church, Patrick. I'm just kidding. I mean, really, are we going to quibble over this little stuff when we got a billion in the account? Do you realize you have way more than that in your forgiveness account? You are, you are, I am, we are all obligated to forgive. We cannot hold grudges against our wives, against our husbands, against our kids. We can't do silent treatment. We can't do manipulation. We can't do withdrawal. We can't do any of those things. It's just wrong. We are obligated to forgive. So they took him and they killed him. This is the son who is the heir of the vineyard. And, and they threw him out of the vineyard, the vineyard that belonged to him, that his dad built with his own hands that he worked for. And now he allowed these guys to make a profit from for the deal that he just gets some in return. They throw him out of his own vineyard. So then he asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? So these scribes and elders and chief priests are all sucked into this story and they're like, oh, no, no, he didn't. He sent another. He did what? He sent his son. Wait, oh, wait a minute. I think you're talking about us. So he says, so what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do? And I'm sure some people, especially these legalistic people, man, he's going to send an army. Because people back then, they had their own armies. There was not a national army. They had their own army. Remember Abraham? Lot is stuck in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a war. he's caught in the middle of a war. Abraham raises up his own servants with their weapons, and he goes defeats multiple armies, and just takes all their money. And and you know, so this vineyard owner, he's got servants. He can raise up his own army with his own money, and he could, he could come destroy them. So how would we answer that question? We would think, man, they deserve to be destroyed. But Jesus says in Matthew twenty one verse forty one, says they said to him. This is the same parallel of the same story. The audience answers, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And in the, in the Greek, it's the same word. He's going to put those wretches to a wretched death. Those horrible people will die a horrible death. Trying to make a parallel between their behavior and what they deserve. 
and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the fruit. So he's going to kill those people and he's going to give it out and let somebody else have a chance to work on this vineyard. So what will the owner do? He will, and so Jesus quotes back to the audience their answer. Yes, he will come and he'll destroy the tenants and he'll give it to others. Have you not, and then he says, have you not read the scriptures? And Jesus now quotes, this is key. Stay with me here. Psalm 118. What did they just say to Jesus on his way to Jerusalem? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, comes in the name of the Lord. Guess where that's from? Psalm 118. Jesus said, oh, you guys want to quote Psalm 18 to me. Did you not read the, just the verses right before that? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You guys say, save us, Lord, save us, Lord, but you're going to reject me. I'm the chief cornerstone, and you will say no to me. And you're saying no, you being re you rejecting them, and you killing me, the beloved son, this is the Lord's doing. Well, I thought it was Pontius Pilate's doing. No, he's just a puppet. I thought it was the chief priest and the, and the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. No, they're just puppets. Puppets. I thought it was the Roman soldiers that actually crucified him. They just drove the nails, but they're just puppets. Who's orchestrating the whole thing? The Lord is. Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. You know, for historians to say, well, Jesus was murdered. He got caught up in his own success and people tried to force him into leadership and he was crucified. No, no. This was before the foundations of the world that God laid out this plan. And this was the Lord's doing. You know what this whole story reminds me of? So he, they ask him a question. You know, By what authority do you think you can just flip tables here in the temple? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism. Was it from God or from man? Or, we don't know. And so then he goes into this parable and they're all like, Oh, wow, they killed him, and that's horrible. They, they What? Oh, man. He, no, no, not his son. It's, you know what it reminds me of? It's when Nathan confronted David about his sin. Awesome story. David, had, David, David has hundreds of wives, okay? No problem there in, in that department. He shouldn't have hundreds of wives, but he did. And yet he selfishly sees a woman bathing, and he takes her. We don't know how forcible it was. We don't know if she put up a fight. We don't know. That doesn't matter. But he commits adultery with her, and then he finds out she's pregnant. So he's like, tries to trick Uriah to come home from battle to sleep with his wife so he, he can claim it as his own son. But he's so loyal to his fellow soldiers that he won't even go into his wife. He's like, how can I do that and enjoy my wife when my brothers are out there dying? I mean, kudos to him for his loyalty. And so that plan doesn't work. So he has Uriah murdered by sending him to the front of the battle and then have everybody retreat and leave him there to die. Premeditated murder. And just as murderous if, if, if David had pulled the sword out himself. And even worse. And so David did all that. So Nathan comes to, to David and says, hey, I need to tell you about a problem in the kingdom. He says, okay, tell me. And he says, there was this sheep, this guy who had a little tiny farm and he had one little baby girl lamb. He has to make it a girl so you're even more attached to it, okay? And he said, this little lamb was like one of his kids. It ate at his table. It drank from his cup. It drank from his cup, okay? And, and he loved it like it was his own daughter. And then a guy on the next hillside, he's got thousands of sheep. And he has a guest come to visit him. And this, guy, this guest wants, you know, veal. What, what's the baby lamb called? Veal, right? Lamb? Spring lamb. Thank you. There we go. He wants spring lamb. He wants the best meat. 
So rather than taking one of his thousands, he goes and steals the little baby lamb that meant everything to this man and his family, and he kills it for, to feed his own guest. And David is like, oh my gosh, who in the world would do such a thing? Whoever did this, they deserve to die and then they repay tenfold. And Nathan goes, you're the man. And David swallows. And he's like, you're right, I am. It's like one of those gotcha stories, but in a good way. And this is what he does to the Pharisees, the scribes and the elders. He tells a story of people killing people who are just there to collect what the owner asked for. And they're all getting sucked in the story. And he basically says, talking about you. And they knew it. They, they understood the parable, but yet they didn't. They, did, they understood enough to know that they were the ones that were being talked about. But they didn't understand it enough, or they weren't willing to understand it enough to repent. And they were seeking to arrest him. They should be falling at his knees saying, you're right, forgive us, forgive us. We're just like our fathers who've killed all the prophets and we're doing the same thing. But they feared for the people. Once again, they know the truth, but peer pressure is like, oh, I'm not going to follow it. Wouldn't it be a shame if there was someone here this morning that you know that this is the gospel, you know this is the truth, and yet you won't give your life to Christ because, well, it'd be embarrassing in front of my friends. I don't know what my parents would think. I don't know what my brother would think. Wouldn't that be sad? It says, for they perceived that the, he had told the parable against them. And here's the sad part. So they left him and they went away. You see, some deny the existence of God when it's God that allows them to exist. And some people find fault in God's word. They try to nitpick parts. Oh, well, there's a contradiction, or there's a part of whatever, and they try to nitpick God's word. But the word is what's supposed to help us find the fault in us. And when we don't understand what's going on, we will question God when God is going to question us and say, what have you done with my son? Why should I let you into my kingdom? We judge God's decisions. And when we don't know, when we're the ones who don't even know all the facts, but God is going to judge all of our decisions when he knows every last detail. We ask, how could a loving God allow evil when we should ask the question, how could we do evil against such a loving God who died for us? Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, said this, if you reject him, he answers for you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Those last words are so sad. They left him and they went away. Wouldn't that be sad that here you know about the greatest love the world has ever known? That in, in spite of you and me sing, sinning against the holy God, being rebellious like we want to run our own lives, and yet you find out that he keeps sending servants to us and eventually he comes and dies for you so that you can be forgiven of all of it. And then you just say, nah, you leave and, and, you, and you walk away. I, I'm just begging you and pleading you this morning, don't, don't walk away from Jesus. He's your only hope. He died for you. 
I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm asking believers in Jesus to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would pull back the blindness from eyes. Maybe there's someone watching online, or maybe there's someone here this morning, and maybe there's people who think you're a Christian, but you know inside you're not. You've just kind of gone through the motions, or maybe you've been a skeptic. You're not really sure you believe the Bible. You're not sure this is true. I, I just want to ask you right now to have a conversation with the Lord, to trust Him for, your, for the forgiveness of your sins. He gave his life for you. He paid it all. He's asking you to give your life to him. Would you make that deal with the Lord? Would you exchange your life for his? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this amazing but yet really intense story. Lord, it, it, it does point to all of us, not just the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. It, it points to us that we are rebellious and we, we want to run our own lives. That's just It's in our sinful nature. But Lord, I pray that you'll give us the strength of the Spirit of God to follow in your footsteps as Jesus did because it's the Spirit of Christ that lives in us. And Father, if there's someone here today who does not know Christ, I pray they'd make that decision, that they would not walk away from you as they did. And we ask all this in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. If you made a decision to trust Christ, man, I'd love to talk to you. This is my cell phone number. Feel free to call me. And let's talk about the next steps, and maybe you can even follow the Lord in baptism next Sunday. All right, we're going to do a question and answer session. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? Great. Looks like some questions have already come in. There you go. I'll, I'll let you do it. There we go. That microphone, there we go. You have to wake him up. All right. Fun talking. Okay. I have a friend whose mom is Mormon and the father is an atheist. They believe that there is a God, but don't agree with the Mormon belief. Uh, they're, they aren't really looking to be in a church, but what would their denomination religion be considered? Would they be atheist, Mormon? Etc. So the question is, what would they be? Atheist, Mormon? Right. So denominations aren't like dogs where you're a labradoodle. <laughs> if you have a labrador and a poodle and you mix them, it doesn't work that way. You can't be a, uh, an atheist Mormon. It doesn't work that way. Um, so that unfortunately, the child has to make a choice. And hopefully that child chooses neither because Mormons do not worship the true Jesus. The Jesus of Mormonism is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Okay. He was created by the Heavenly Father having intercourse with Mary. Okay? And that when, when the Heavenly Father chose to give the kingdom to Jesus, Lucifer got mad and went on a rampage, and that's why we have this battle. Totally not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a false Jesus. Um, Mormonism started the same way Islam started. Read the parallel accounts of Joseph Smith and Muhammad. Both have angels appearing to them. Both have gold stones to translate into a new language to start a new religion. And they're both, um, it's what you know, the New Testament calls doctrines of demons. And so it just you need to pray for the children of the situation. There's no denominational, it's not even an issue in denominations. People, I'm not going to say denominations are bad. It's like when you go into the grocery store and you're looking for green beans. If none of the cans had labels on them, what would you do? Oh, well, we're non-label cans. 
we're, we're just non-labeled vegetables. Well, I want the low-sodium green beans. How do I find it? So that's why people say, well, what kind of Baptist are you? Well, I'm this kind of Baptist. Well, what kind of us? Well, we're, we're not. We're Pentecostal, but we're Assembly of God. Or we're this. And, and it's like you're forced to say, identify, what do you believe? And so labels can be good or bad. Again, we, we're really thankful for labels when we go to the grocery store. Okay. If God's will be done, why do we pray for healing and such? Will his will be the outcome no matter what we do? Great question. So there is uh, God's comprehension comprehensive will, God's commanding will, and God's compassionate will. Okay? God's comprehensive will is that he's in control of all of history. That he is sovereign over all. There isn't a, a bird that falls to the ground without him knowing it and him being in control of all of it. Okay? And yet at the same time, you have free will. And don't, I cannot explain that how God can be in total control and you got a free will, but that both are true. Okay? That's just called the sovereignty of God. Now, so God knows that the world's going to get worse. Jesus is going to come again. Battle of Armageddon. You know, the second coming. All that. He knows all that. And that's his commanding will. I mean, his comprehensible. There's his commanding will. Thou shalt not lie. But guess what? We lie. So just because God commands it doesn't mean it's going to happen. He's saying this is what the perfect world should look like, but you guys aren't perfect. The commandments show us that we're sinners. Then there's God's compassionate will. What he would like to have happen, like... Like First Peter says, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, are people going to perish? Yes. Will all come to repentance? No. But it's what God desires. You know, it's just like you desire for your kids to do a certain, certain things, but you don't force them to do everything. So God's in total control, but yet the way that we, what prayer does, it changes not God's heart, it changes ours. Prayer is to get us in line with the Heavenly Father and His will, and he does ask, and it, it's interesting, even though he knows what we want before we ask, he still asks. And it's just like you do with some of your kids. You're, you, want, you have something here for them, but you want them to say, please, can I have it? Yes, there you go. Thank you. You want them to say the magic word. Even though you've already got, bought this for them, you don't just give it to them before they ask. You want them to be polite. So it's part of the relationship is what prayer does. It, it enhances the relationship with God, even though he's in total control. It's constantly acknowledging just that. You're in total control. Your will be done. And so, and even Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see the difference there? He, it's okay to ask for things. Some of it God will give, some he won't, but he always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to him. Okay. What are your thoughts on the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade? Um. Let me just set aside the Bible for a second. Roe versus Wade is bad law. It was bad law. To say an abortion is a constitutional right, the word abortion is nowhere in the, in the Constitution. It's not even in there. They had to force it in there. It was just bad. The reason it's being overturned right now, and even um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's passed away, she said Roe versus, and she's the, as liberal as they come, she said it was bad law. They were just trying to force it. The courts, that's what they wanted at the time. And it was not only based on bad law, it was based on bad science. What they kept preaching back then was it's just a blob of tissue. It's just a blob of tissue. It's no longer than trimming a, uh, they, they would say, it's no, longer, uh, no, no different than trimming a, hang, a hangnail off your finger. And now we know heartbeat quickly. It's a human life. People say, well, it's not a human life. Well, is it living? Yes. What kind of life is it? It's not canine. It's not feline. It's human. It is human life. And the Constitution does say that 
All people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All human beings, whether you're in the stomach or out. You see, right now, we're killing them based on location. A baby, one hour old, on the table, oh, we can't kill that. One hour earlier was here. It's just based on location. So what does that do with premature babies? One baby, one baby can go nine and a half months. Oh, is it less human than the baby was born three months premature? Yes, question. What scripture? Did Lucifer, okay, I'm quoting Mormonism, not the Bible. And, and then it wasn't Lucifer, it was the Heavenly Father. Are you referring to what I said earlier? Yeah. According to Mormonism, the Heavenly Father had intercourse with Mary. That's not in the Bible. That's absolutely not in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So there's what's called in Psalms the, the, the council of the gods and of course little g gods like the higher angels and, and things that, that would meet before God and he would talk to them and he would even talk to Lucifer and all that. And I don't totally understand that. The Bible doesn't say much about it. But then when Jude, which is, um, you said first you're just Jude. Uh, well, it's, there's no... Yes. So there's the book of Jude. It only has one chapter. So I think that's what you're referring to. It talks about the angels which kept not their first estate were cast into chain, outer darkness and chains. So there's evidently two groups of angels because they're talking about fallen angels. Because there's demons that are active. Paul talks about them. Jesus encountered them. The disciples countered them. But then he also talks about angels who have already been cast into the pit. And I believe, and I'm not going to fight over this because it's, it's not 100% clear, I believe that the angels who tried to cohabit with women when there was giants in the land and God destroyed them for that, that those are the ones that, hey, hey, if you're going to do that, you're going to the pit now. So let's just say there's a billion angels that are fallen and a thousand of them try to do this weird thing with women and God says, oh, no, I was going to cast you into outer darkness later when Jesus comes, but you guys are going now. So I think that's referring to them there. Good question. Let me get back to this one here. So it's bad law, it's bad science, but then it's also unbiblical because even John the Baptist leaped in his womb when he was, when he was near the Messiah Jesus. So we, and, and how many prophets said that I was called from my mother's womb? Okay, so, so how, then the question is, what are my thoughts on it? What's going to happen now is it's going to go back to the states. And if you think America is divided now between red and blue, it's going to be divided into murder states and life states. It, it, it's it's going to get bad. Um, there was a book written about 14 years ago, and this guy was not a Christian, but based on political science, he predicted the United States would be split into five different countries. And it, it, it's and basically what happens is the, the Northeast goes California, uh, California and other states will be forced out because they're so in debt and going crazy that they will force that Texas will secede and Oklahoma and Louisiana will join them. The Southeast will go in direction. And this is what this guy predicted, and it, it seems like it's going there. And I'm all for secession, but kind of anyway. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. Right. Back to the questions. Uh, those who not. Those who do not get the 666 mark, what will happen? How will this evil end in the world? 
Okay, so it says that those who, okay, so the church is captured, is caught away. That's what the word rapture means, a catching away. Jesus comes and gets his bride. And the Bible says we're saved from wrath through him. So if the tribulation is God pouring out his wrath, why would we be here? That's the best evidence for us taken away. So then what you have is people left behind, but we know that there are tribulation saints because we look down from heaven and say, how long, O Lord, how long? And he said, just wait, just wait, there's more to be saved. And it says that those who refuse the mark of the beast uh, and they were endured to the end by the word of their testimony and the power of the blood, they lost their heads. And so you have people who are martyred for the cause of Christ during the tribulation, but they're saved because of that. They're not saved a different way. They're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. There's only one plan of salvation. Abraham got saved the same way we do. The Bible says God preached the gospel to Abraham. So everybody's saved by looking to the cross. Some look to, into the future to the cross. Some look back in the past to the cross. We all look through time. All saved. So they're saved that way, but it costs them their lives. Um, so, but there's also people who refuse the mark but never get saved, which is really weird. It's like they're the militia, you know, that they're off the grid up in Montana, you know, and they got their guns, and they're not going to accept the mark of the beast, but they're also not going to bow the knee to Christ. But that's a whole other thing. I was born and raised Catholic. I was baptized as a baby. Do I need to be rebaptized? I have always been a believer regardless of the religion or way of worship. Great question. I too was born Catholic. So nowhere in the Bible is a baby ever baptized. Nowhere. In fact, you see people being told you can't get baptized until you do what? Except that Jesus Christ died for you, was buried, and rose again. When you are old enough to understand, and there's no magic number, I've heard of people getting saved at five. My son Adrian got saved at five. I've heard of four. That's scary. I think I could safely say one is impossible, but I don't want to start putting numbers on it. Some, some denominations say it's age nine. I don't know how in the world they know that. <laughs> I don't know what Bible they read that from. I'd like tell me if you know. But anyway, whenever you're old enough to understand, I am a sinner and I deserve God's punishment. But Jesus took that punishment for me. And that's why Jesus said, suffer little children to come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. So the gospel, think about this. The gospel is the only religion, I don't like that word, but in the world that a child can understand. Think about that. Can, can a child understand all the seven steps, the pillars of Islam? No way. Can they all understand all the levels of Buddhism or Hinduism? There's no way. But a child can simply say, you know what? You've done wrong, haven't you? Yes, mommy, I lied. But you know what? Instead of you being punished and being separated from God for eternity, Jesus took your punishment, and all you have to do is give your life to him. A five, six-year-old can understand that. So that, that's another reason I believe Christianity is the true way. Um, did I answer it all? Uh, it, yeah, it was more, um, do I need to be oh, re so yes, thank you. I knew there was part of the amount. So my answer is yes, because number one, a christening of a baby is not biblical at all. Okay, if, if baptism, which the word baptism means to immerse, we're immersed in water, what does the water represent? The grave. You know what sprinkling represents? Throwing dirt at somebody. It's really what it represents. So this sprinkling a baby or doing this on a baby's forehead is not baptism. The baby, number one, doesn't understand. So it's, it's the wrong person. And number two, it's the wrong method. And also, number three, it's by the wrong authority. It's not by a gospel-preaching church. So I got baptized again after I got saved. So baptism is what follows salvation. It is not your salvation. It is your public way of saying, hey, I am now saved. I believe Jesus died for me. He was buried, and he rose again. So yes, I would recommend you get baptized. Whoever that is, you can contact me. All right, good job. Well, hey, let's stand and let's pray. 
Y'all keep praying for Brother Stan and Reva. Miss Reva had her heart catheterization this week and is doing good. She may need some surgery in the future, but that's she needs to pray about that. And Brother Stan doesn't have his back brace on. <laughs> Amen. Give the Lord a hand for that. That's great. So, Brother Stan, we love you very much.